Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians and from Colossians. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Whenever we have stadium seating, I always feel like kind of imbalanced because like two thirds are right here and I'm over here. So if I'm like starting to look this way, it's not because I don't like people over here. It's just the natural thing that happens. Um, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we uh, pause again um, in your presence uh, resting in the reality that you are here with us, that you do not leave us alone, that you are not silent, but that you speak, that you are working in our hearts to renew us and to make us more like Jesus. And so, standing in the knowledge of your grace, we pray even now that you would help us, that you would help us to listen, that you would shape us, that you would renew us, that we would be more like your Son, and that you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning, like I think the second week of this year, we have made our focus on one central theme. It's one that we've already talked about this morning. And that's the question of what, as followers of Christ, is our mission? What does it mean for us to live out the mission we have been given through Jesus in every sphere of our life? And really, the fundamental answer that we have given from the beginning is fairly simple, and that is that we are called to love. As people who have experienced God's redeeming love, as God opens wide his arms to this world and welcomes people back, we also are called to be those who, rather than holding our arms together in fear, open our arms wide in welcome, seeking to love wherever God places us. 
So a couple of weeks ago, we thought this through in relation to work, how, as even Dave was speaking of this morning, how we can love the world simply by working well and competently. We, we serve Christ and we show Christ's love in that way. We also spoke last week of how as we are called to extend the life-changing love of Christ, that involves hospitality, that involves welcoming the stranger, which is why World Relief is, is an organization that we care so much about because that's part of our calling as Christians. Well, this morning our focus is on how we live out our mission of love when it relates to knowledge. Now, that's an abstract-sounding question. At least it was to me as I started thinking this through. But as I've been thinking this past week, it's occurred to me that this is actually a very relevant question. I wonder if you know what the 2016 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was. I won't ask you know, anyone to raise their hands. It was post-truth. That the, the, our culture has so spoken about this post-truth situation that we're in, where, where facts don't seem to matter, where there are alternative facts, where we're just throwing information side by side, that it's become a part of our language that we speak of post-truth. And so that shows that we are having a struggle over what it means to know and, and how important knowledge is. And we even raised the question of if knowledge is important. Have you ever wondered this question, why is it that people can know so much and yet do so much wrong? I mean, this is a question I think was really posed to the world about 75 or 80 years ago when you think of, of Germany, which was really at the apex of European culture. It had the greatest writers, musicians, philosophers, scientists, and yet Nazi Germany came from this culture. In fact, some of the most brilliant scientists then worked with Nazi Germany to try to develop their technology. How does that work that they could know so much and yet do so much that is wrong? That's a question that the financial scandal of a few years ago poses to us. You have some of the most brilliant people in the country working on Wall Street, and yet you have some of the greatest examples of corruption in the very same place. How does that happen? We see it in academia. Perhaps you've heard of a man by the name of Peter Singer. He is a professor of bioethics at Princeton, and he argues that it is moral for parents to kill their born children the first few months because they're not yet truly human. That's the bioethics professor in Princeton. How can people who know so much just get things so deeply immorally wrong? Now maybe that's a question that you don't find that confusing because you've already come to see or the opinion that knowledge and virtue just really don't have anything to do with each other. And I think that's actually the reaction that our culture has moved away from, that it really isn't value to know things, because all it seems is people who know things are just able to use that for their own gain. And so there's been kind of a movement away, so there's a suspicion of experts. If you have a PhD, it doesn't mean anything. There's a suspicion of, of arguments that seem complicated. We shouldn't have to know that much to understand things, seems to be the attitude. But of course, with that being pushed as far as it's been pushed, it ends up starting to mean that it doesn't really matter whether you know truth or not. 
There's an anti-intellectualism. There is a sense that both sides have their own facts. No one's going to agree. All that you have left is just manipulation and shouting. It's kind of where we are. So we find ourselves with a problem where it seems either knowing things doesn't help us, but not knowing things certainly doesn't help us. So where does that leave us? And I want to suggest that the Bible offers a different way of seeing this. Where the fundamental question is not just what you know, but how we know. And that's what we see in, in the letter Paul wrote to the, first, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. See, the Corinthian church was a church that seemed to be really impressed with knowledge. They seemed to have maybe an unhealthy interest in, in celebrity speakers. Whenever Apollos or Peter came, they thought that was awesome. They had an interest in being articulate in speech, in knowing a lot. And those who knew more felt very impressed with themselves at the expense of those who knew less. So what's interesting is that when Paul starts addressing this church, he he doesn't speak against knowledge. Did you notice that in the opening verses? He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. He gives thanks for the knowledge they have. He says that comes to you through Christ. It is good to know and yet, when we come to chapter 8, we see a slightly more complicated picture. In chapter 8, and throughout Corinthians, actually, Paul keeps on addressing different questions that, he's, that have been asked to him. And there is this controversy that the Corinthian church is facing over meat sacrifice to idols. Some who have recently become Christians feel like they are betraying God if they eat meat that has been offered to idols. But others say, hey, I know better. I know that no other God exists besides the true God, and because I know the truth, I can eat without any worries, and anyone who is worried about it is just dumb. There is this sense of superiority that some had because they were in the know and others weren't. And so Paul deals with that kind of knowledge head on. Perhaps you notice in the passage, it says, now concerning food offers to idol, we know that, and then there's quotes, all of us possess knowledge. He's quoting the Corinthian church. He's saying, I know that there's some of you who feel pretty impressed with yourselves that you know that there's only one God and so that you can eat meat even if it's offered to idols. I know that. You, you possess knowledge. But, but here's the issue. Notice what he writes next. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Now that last phrase I think is really important. He does not yet know as he ought to know. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that there is a right way of knowing and there is a wrong way of knowing. The wrong way of knowing, he's saying, makes you feel puffed up and proud about yourself. The wrong way of knowing is when you believe that you have mastery over information. Anyone who says that I know something. And the wrong way of knowing doesn't bring about love. The right way of knowing, of course, is the opposite. There is a humility that comes. And there is a love that flows from it. 
So I'd like to suggest to you that we describe these two ways of knowing in two distinct ways. There is the way of knowing where knowledge is power, and there's a way of knowing where knowledge is worship. First, let's just think about knowledge as power. I think this is so much a way that we view learning that we don't even think about it as an alternative. And that is to view knowing stuff, gathering information as a tool. It's something we do to help us to get what we want, to satisfy our desires. So if you're in school, we see knowing stuff as a way to get good grades so that we can get into a good college. And then we can know stuff in college so we can get into a good job. It's a tool that we use to get what we want. Or in business, we, we gain information to give ourselves an edge over the other competitor. It's a tool. Even in the political discourse, have you noticed that oftentimes it seems like the only reason people are trying to learn information is so they can then use it as a grenade to throw against the other side to show that they're the better party. It's a way of consolidating power. And that's what it's about. Knowledge is power. It's about using whatever information that I have been given as a tool to satisfy the desires that I have. Now notice that this view of knowledge isn't, isn't really that concerned about truth. You know, if it's information that will get me a good grade, I don't really care if it's true as long as I get the good grade. Or if it's information that I can use to make the other party look bad, I don't really care if it's true as long as it does its task. It's purely driven by what works, not by what's true. And notice also that this view of knowledge doesn't have anything to do with virtue. There's no sense that this learning changes you. Learning is just stuff that you accumulate to use. And that's the reason why you can have people who know so much be part of Nazi Germany or be corrupt or, or say some of the horrible because it's just a tool and it doesn't shape us. And notice most of all that when we view knowledge just as a tool, there is a really important component that we're removing from the conversation, and that is God himself. There is no concept of God in the way that we view knowledge. And if anything, it's just us. We are trying to make ourselves more and more powerful so we can do more and more what we want. We are the God of that way of knowing. But there is a different way of seeking to know, a different way of approaching truth. Paul signals that when he says he does not know as he ought to know. That implies there is a way that you ought to know. There's a right way. And that way is knowledge that is worship. And to understand what I mean by that, it has to begin with the very thing that was left out in the previous conception, and that is God. If you were with us a couple years ago when we were studying Proverbs, you might remember that it, it begins, it's, it's underlying truth that drives everything of that book is, in, is 1 verse 7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now think about that. He's saying to truly know anything, it begins with the fear of the Lord. Now why is that? 
Well, maybe some of you have seen the movie Rain Man. It's a classic from about 20 years ago. It tells the story of a man getting to know his older brother who was severely impaired by autism. And there's this one thing that his older brother always does. Whenever he is anxious, he will just kind of like recite the old Abbott and Costello comedy, Who's on First? Maybe some of you heard Who's on First. The, it's, it's, it's just a joke based on the idea that the guy who, who plays first base, his name is Who. And so, you know, like, Rain, you know, like this, this guy, Raymond, you know, he starts reciting, who's in first? I'm asking you, who's in first? That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Go ahead and tell me, and so on. And he clearly has no idea as he's reciting it that it's a joke. He doesn't get what it is really about. He can remember every detail, but he still stays outside of what it really is. And I want to say that is the problem that our world has as it seeks to know. We gather all sorts of information, we know so much more than we used to about the facts, but we don't get it. We don't really see what it's about because we don't see God at the center of it. Because God is the one who made everything, who made substance. God's the one who organized this world. So there's the principles of physics and gravity. God is the one who holds things together. Atoms have their properties because God continues to will it to be so. And all of this universe exists ultimately for God, for the glory of God. Colossians focuses our attention even more on that, focusing it specifically on Christ. Did you notice what Gretchen read when she read from Colossians? It says that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And verse 17, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things, everything was made through Christ. He was involved in the making of it. Everything was made for Christ. He is the ultimate purpose of this holy universe. And he is the one who holds all things together. He is at the very center of reality. And so you cannot understand truth unless you see God at the center of it. This is why Jesus says to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, I am the way and I am the truth and the life. Because to know Christ is to know the entrance point to truth. He is the, the, the prism through which we truly get to understand all reality. Because that means all of reality ultimately is not just inert facts that we do stuff with. It is it's revelation. That is, it is God sharing his truth with us and helping us to understand his world. And when we understand that, that means we have a fundamentally different posture towards knowledge. Knowledge is not about manipulation. It's not about using. Knowledge is about listening. It's about opening ourselves up and allowing ourselves to be shaped by the truth that comes from God. You know, it's interesting to me that even the way that the word knowledge or to know is used in the Bible is different from the way that we oftentimes use it. In the Old Testament, there's this one place at the very beginning of Exodus where 
It speaks of how Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, did not know Joseph. And because he did not know Joseph, he starts treating Israel bad. Now, what it's meaning is not that he didn't know about Joseph or, or have a personal... It was that he didn't allow the reality of what Joseph had done to shape his decision-making. That's the point. Or even perhaps more obviously, in Genesis 4, it says that Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Now, that is clearly not talking about a factual knowledge. That's speaking of something far more intimate, where where knowledge involves a relationship, involves a connection, involves the reality of whatever one is beholding to shape that person. It's a different posture. And that is what we're called to know. We're called to know in such a way where we are, we're listening where we're opening ourselves up, where we are obeying as truth is being shown to us, it is a knowledge that ultimately is about worship of the God who's at the center of all that is known. And let me say that that means Christians more than anyone else should be people who love truth and care about truth. Because we have no reason ever to fear truth. Right? I mean, one of the reasons people fear truth is because truth exposes themselves. We've already been exposed. We already have recognized our own failure, and Christ has dealt with it on the cross. We don't need to be afraid of that. One of the other reasons people avoid truth is because it speaks of things they are afraid of in the future, but we don't need to be afraid. Christ is one. He has triumphed over death. He has triumphed over evil. Every truth we can allow open ourselves up to hear it and receive it because we know it comes from God who we love and we do not need to be afraid. Christians have the reputation of shedding their minds and their heads to the truth and that is not the way it should be. We can love truth because it is of God. Now this way of knowing where it's more listening and being shaped by being mastered by truth rather than trying to master it. It also is a kind of power. But it's a different power than the power of control. It's a power of harmony. The more that we come to understand this world and be shaped by it, the more that we learn how to live wisely within it, the more that we are shaped by the love of God and able to reflect that love, and there is a freedom in living in harmony with reality. That's why Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there is knowledge is power, and there's knowledge is worship. I realize that this is a little abstract, so let me try to tease this out with a few examples of what this looks like as a difference. We've already mentioned one. In in 1 Corinthians 8, there are some people who know that God is one, and they're using that truth like a club to prove their superiority. That's knowledge is power. But imagine if instead they open themselves up to the reality that there is one God, the one who is worthy of all their love and their worship, and they allow themselves to be shaped by that truth. That would humble them. That would cause them to seek, as they know the God who loves, to actually love others rather than just prove that they're better. Example very similar that I was reminded of when I thought about this. When I came to college, I was, I suppose what you could say, arrogantly reformed. 
Perhaps you've come across people like that. I was one of them who wanted to make sure people realized how wrong they were to not believe in predestination. And it wasn't good. It was obnoxious. It was a club, a way that I made myself feel superior to other people. But it is so opposite. I mean, that's knowledge of power. But if I just thought about the fact that there was nothing that I had done to make God love me, that God from all eternity had named me as his own and chosen me purely out of mercy, how in the world could that truth make me arrogant? See, that's knowledge as worship. Or, or think of science. Right now, there is so much that's going on in terms of discovery about how to manipulate genes. I was reading about how they figured out how to make a part human, part pig embryo. Because they can. Because they can clone. There's so much that's going on where this is just knowledge as a tool and how do we manipulate things to get what we want. That's knowledge as power. But there could be a very different approach to the same knowledge where as we look and we see at the incredible intricacy of, of God's pattern of genetics and how fragile we are as humans. And so we ask God, how can I be faithful stewards with this, with this knowledge, with this design? How can I uphold humanity? How can I serve you? That's knowledge. That's worship. Or, or political knowledge. Perhaps you, like me, are distressed, not even just about the substance of what is spoken about, but how things are spoken of right now. Where, where everything that is learned is just to be used as this information grenade to throw to the other side and hopefully explode them. That's knowledge is power. But there can be a different approach of seeking truly to understand both sides, seeking truly to understand what's going on, not just so that we can know, but so that we can love so that we can feel the weight of the responsibility of the situation, saying, what does it look like for me to serve my God in this situation? That is knowledge that's worship. That's the right way of knowing. I mean, do, do, do you see the difference? Well, let me just close with a couple of applications that I think this, this means of us. One is, as followers of Christ, this means we can approach all learning as worship. Because all truth comes from God. All truth ultimately points to Christ. When we are learning, we are, as, as Kepler was famous for having said, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. So all truth invites us to, to be changed, to grow, which means learning is worship. So for you who are in school right now, let me, let me tell you, your calling is higher than getting good grades. Your calling is to worship as you learn. And that can happen even in geometry problems and learning the difference between a participle and an infinitive and memorizing all of the names of the countries in Africa. They can seem so small, but we can still open ourselves up to that reality and seek to be formed knowing that this is truth and that means it's from God and we honor him as we seek to learn. Now this means also for the rest of us that we are called to be lifelong learners. Because there is so much to know, and it is so good. We are called to be curious, to be interested in the way this world works, because as we learn more about this world, we learn more about the God who made it. We're called to care about, about details, and not just be interested in confirming our own biases, 
but actually seeking to understand the very best version of the other side's argument. Because we don't want to be right. We want to be in the truth. So we can worship God with the way that we approach learning. And secondly, and here's where I get really to the answer of the question that I pose, what does it look like for us to live on mission when it comes to knowledge? As followers of Christ, upholding the truth is a form of loving resistance. Perhaps you agree with me that as I look at our culture right now, it feels sick to me, like just really unhealthy. I think we can rightly say that as a culture turns further away from God, it also turns further away from truth. It either moves to anti-intellectualism or it means to just a form of using knowledge to manipulate. And the more that a culture moves away from truth and reality, the sicker it becomes because reality is the way that we learn how to walk wisely. And reality is the way that we learn how to walk together. We are unified as we see the truth together. And so without it, we become really sick. And so I think you and I together are called to be part of a resistance movement. We love this world too much to let it fall apart as it allows itself to move towards lies and ignorance and post-truth where alternative facts and manipulation and propaganda are all that matters. We can love the world. We can act as a loving resistance to what's going on by upholding the truth with our words and our lives. So that means you who are in the truth-upholding business. That means you who are teachers, you who are counselors, you who are writers, you who are lawyers, and you who have influence over others whether you're in a position of leadership, or you're a parent, or you're a mentor. You who speak, which is all of us, we all have an obligation to be those who stand in this resistance by upholding the truth. And not not in a way where we're speaking quickly and loudly. Truth matters too much to us to do that. We're going to be quick to listen, quick to pray, and slow to speak. And not upholding the truth with arrogance, because the more that we come to know the truth, the more that we realize how little we know, how much greater God is than us, and it just humbles us rather than makes us feel proud. No, we uphold the truth because we follow the one who before Pilate says, this is why I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And he did so by dying. And so in the same way, we, in gentleness, in humility, in love, give ourselves to our words and our actions upholding the truth. This is a key way that we, on mission, love the world around us. Well, I want us to turn our hearts and attention to the table. The way that we orient ourselves to the truth rightly is by orienting ourselves to the gospel of remembering that no truth is one that we have to be afraid of because Christ has dealt with all of our fears through dying for us. 
To prepare our hearts for this, I'd like to invite us to spend some time first in confession of sin. And we will together pray in the bold print, and then I will, and then we'll have a time of silent confession. So would you please join me in, in praying this prayer together? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you are merciful and kind, but we have gone our own way, not loving you as we ought, nor loving our neighbors as ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have failed to do. We deserve your condemnation. Father, forgive us. Help us to love you and our neighbor and to live for your honor and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel. God is slow to anger and full of compassion. He forgives all who humbly repent and trust in his Son as Savior and Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.